Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Office Hours Career Pathways for PhDs. My name is Jasmine Goodman, and we started this series because we wanted to give an outlet for people with PhDs to share just how they transition into their careers. I, as usual, I'm excited. We have a guest that has so much experience and such a unique story. His name is Dr. Micah Lomax. He is currently the marketing research manager for Meta. But before that, he earned his PhD in music theory and composition from Florida State University. So I'm going to bring him to the stage. Hi, how are you? I am good. How are you? I am great. So just a bit of background, Dr. Lomax and I met at the Insights Association panel. It was a virtual panel hosted about intersectionality in market research and in the workplace. It was a very insightful topic, a very interactive panel. And I was happy that when we started this series that we could really just tie into his experiences because he has such a, a unique story. And I know it's going to be a great story. So Dr. Lomax, I would love to learn more about when you went into your PhD program, what was your career goal? What were you thinking about doing after you graduated? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, being in the arts, uh, the the job field is uh, anyone who's in the humanities, just in general, uh, our job prospects are pretty are are pretty all over the place. Um, you know, in one sense, that sounds like there's a lot of opportunity, but I think what I felt at the time was that there are limited opportunities. Um, I have an education undergrad, music education, so I thought, you know, I, I really loved teaching, um, and I thought that's where I was going to spend the rest of my life. And uh, going into graduate school, I finished my undergrad in the middle of the recession uh, in the 2008 recession. Um, so I finished in 2010 and it was like not a great market, especially for uh, music teachers. Uh, those were programs being cut from a lot of public schools. And uh, so I decided to go hide out in grad school thinking like, hey, I can still teach. I can continue to be a student, which I know I love doing. I can continue studying something I really love. And I will just, I'll just become a professor. That's a very trivial statement, but I really thought like, okay, maybe that's, maybe that's a, a great opportunity is I can go get my master's and my PhD and, and I can stay in academia. And I'd be pleased to do that because I enjoyed the teaching aspect of it. Now, at what point, so when did everything start, start to shift for you? Um, this is, this is funny. So my brother and I had like this existential crisis. Um, my brother, I was at Florida state, my brother was in the area. And so he's like, why don't you fly over and see me and we'll hang out for the weekend. I was like, sure. And, uh, I was in like the second year of my PhD. Um, uh, and I did my PhD and my master's at FSU. So I had not as much coursework as a lot of my other, like, um, doctoral cohort. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was doing a lot more like independent study, working on my dissertation. I was kind of, calendared to finish quite a bit faster than a lot of my classmates because I had done all of the prereqs at, at FSU. Okay. And I started to have like this existential, like, oh no, I don't really know if I'm in the right area. I really loved the subject matter, but the two things that really scared me were one, the size of the job market was incredibly small. Just to kind of give you perspective, we had like a, a, a wiki for people that were graduating with PhDs, uh, in either musicology or music theory. Um, there's a lot of kind of cross-pollination between the fields in, the, in teaching. Um, and what ended up happening was there are usually like 30 to 35 positions at the time when I was finishing for my field. And there'd be like a hundred or more graduates plus anybody who had uh, left their, their role 
or their current role had been discontinued at another university. So it's like, you know, kind of like a four to one, five to one ratio of interviewers to jobs. And some of those people are like, oh, I've already been teaching for five years. It just just visiting professor. It wasn't a tenure track. So they have publication mm-hmm. and experience. And so the job market was becoming really hard. That was number one. And number two is just like really evaluating, you know, is this really the field I want to be in? Because I went undergrad, master's, PhD. I was still very young. And I was like, am I really committed mm-hmm. to staying in this for the rest of my life? And I was blessed to have some really amazing um, colleagues and I would see their drive being so much greater than mine in a lot of things. And I would see their excitement about some things that I didn't share exactly the same level of excitement. Mm-hmm. So it really started this kind of reevaluation process of like, one, the job market is kind of tough. And two, the people that are in my field, I, I wonder if they're more passionate than I am um, or their passion will actually help them get a job more than me because they're willing to just fight that much harder uh, and maybe I'm not as willing to fight. And so those kind of two things started to shift. And I really only had a few courses left uh, before I was ABD. Um, it's a really rad, really rad time to start questioning this path. Um, but it was really healthy. And my brother provided a lot of great context. And he was the one who really challenged me to like make a list of the things that I do and translate those into skills and then translate those skills into other fields. So he kind of was the first person to actually lay out that that was like an okay thing to say out loud. And that I also wasn't cornered. Having a PhD was not actually limiting. It was actually a very freeing thing. Right. And one thing you just said there about being okay, saying it out loud, because once you get so far along in the process, you're just like, okay, I've done so much work. All this coursework, I'm doing this dissertation that it can be hard to say, you know what, I don't think I want to do this anymore. But you have to kind of take that moment, say those words out loud and be okay with what comes on the other side of it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the one thing I'd encourage anyone who's in this place or anyone who is uh, who is left or is leaving their discipline full time is actually to embrace that. Um, You have done a lot of work. You have done work more than 99 percent of the people that are in your field. I think it's like ninety eight point four. I think there's like one point six percent of Americans have a Ph.D., but it's like you know, you objectively have done more work in this area than most people have. And, and you should never look at leaving your discipline or changing fields as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, uh, like a minimizing that work or that that work was not valid or that that work didn't exist or didn't matter. I tended to think that way. It's like, I'm throwing it all away. You're actually not throwing anything away. All of the work that you've done has led you to where you are now. And so if you hadn't gone through all of this and, and to be very transparent, if you have a PhD, you also are very disciplined and you're very driven. Um, they don't happen by accident. Um, so, you know, really embrace that, the fact that you are performing at a very high level, you've done a ton of work in this field and that is all valid regardless of what you decide to do. There's no minimizing your worth or value by saying it out loud. And you are a very, very intelligent person going on this path. So saying it out loud is still a sign of intelligence. Like there's, I, I would beat myself up. Like I was throwing everything away or I was letting people down and I was like, wait a minute, like mm-hmm. I'm the one doing the work. This is my work. This is my discipline. This is my decision. This is my research. I get to be the master of my destiny and I can change if I want. And it's just as valid as staying. There's, there's, there's no like value judgment either way, I guess. 
Now, what were conversations like with your professors as you were going through this existential crisis? Um, you know, I, uh, so I, I like it a lot to, um, coming out as a gay man. Um, you know, I was like terrified to tell people, um, I was like, oh my God, they're going to be so disappointed in me. Will my committee actually just abandon me? Um, will they actually just block me from finishing? Mm -hmm. And all of that was actually very irrational, at least from my experience. Um, because my committee was disappointed. Um, they wanted to see me stay in the field because they had invested in me. But I also know that they understand that at the same time, there are only so many jobs with seats. And what the most important part of education is to get a job. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not very valuable if you have all of this knowledge and nothing to apply it to. Yeah. And so the conversation was surprising and rather awkward, but it was less about staying in academia. And it was more a fear that I wouldn't finish my degree because I actually took a, a full time job while I was um, actually had two courses left that were electives that I, you know, worked with my chair to basically be like, you know, there's a possibility you won't finish. A lot of people who leave when they're ABD or almost done don't yeah. finish. And so she just had very candid conversations with me. Like she encouraged me to not allow that thinking to take over that other people are going to tell me I can't finish. But in fact, my chair was like, the only person who determines that is you. Right. And it's hard to finish whether you're doing it full-time or part-time. It's just finish. And you have to have that discipline. And so that helped me uh, in my conversations. They went a lot better than I thought. Okay. Um, I I'm going to see all of these people in the next month when I'm speaking at a conference on this exact topic. Oh. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I really value the fact that they allowed me to explore what I wanted to do. Yes, there was disappointment because I left mm -hmm. the field, but it wasn't a value-based judgment on me as a person. It was more just, they had, they had different aspirations for me. Right. So you have a conversation with your brother, with your chair and your committee. What happens after that? Um, I just started networking really, really, really hard. I, I leaned on my brother a lot actually, because he was working in corporate America and I was like introduced. Well, the first thing I did was I started to like identify the types of things I wanted to go into. Um, and I started to talk to people to ask like, what are those types of, you know, fields that I could. So I started looking at job descriptions, like, okay, after I made my list of skills and kind of how that translated into corporate America, I started looking like the department of uh, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. Um, you can look up different job types and it'll tell you a lot of the skills that you need for those jobs. So there are kind of Google resources available, um, you know, or like best jobs with this skill. I know that sounds really stupid, but there's actually like articles uh, around that <laughs> that can help create a rabbit hole. Um, and as somebody who is like, you know, anybody who's again in graduate school doing a lit review is second nature. So imagine it, it's kind of like a lit review. You're doing a lit review on jobs. And when I identified the jobs that I was interested in, um, I reached out to my brother. Uh, he started to help me make some connections to people in his area. I reached out to other people. I used my LinkedIn network. Uh, I used my Facebook network um, and ultimately was able to get a few informational interviews and then one of those informational interviews kind of turned into more of like a formal job interview. And that helped me kind of find a job through that process. But my network and the people that I knew helped me make that transition more than anything. Now, what were some of those skills that you identified that you were able to translate into a, an actual job or job search? 
Yeah, so it, it depends what you're wanting to do. I think the two, um, interestingly, that are incredibly valuable that I do not underestimate, um, especially if you're in any sort of doctoral program. One is if you're doing any sort of uh, instructor of record, teaching assistant, um, mm-hmm. any of those positions, I the two pieces that really come out of that is one, writing a lesson plan is so applicable to so many things that corporate, like corporate people do, which is really understanding objectives, what you want people to understand, and then being able to assess people if they understand and met the objective. I know as teachers, we do that very second nature because we've written hundreds or thousands of lesson plans, but I cannot tell you the amount of people that find that skill very appealing because they've just never been formally taught to do it. Whereas for a teacher, that is second nature. Um, you know how to ask questions in a presentation that are really assessment questions. They're not just asking a question to fill space. Um, You're reading your room, you're reading your audience, which is what we do with students all the time. So I think there's like a communication and like lesson planning aspect that are incredibly valuable. And every job that you're in helps you with your interviewing. When you're answering interview questions, you know, hey, here's what they're asking. Here's how my answer relates to that. And then do, do they get it? You know, like did that, did the interviewer actually pick up on that? Um, that's one thing. Another one is writing your dissertation or your thesis is like the best lesson in project management ever. Yes. Um, understanding what needs to be done in a lot of parallel work streams, understanding dependencies, understanding how to move quickly, understanding like hey, if I don't do this, it holds up all these other things. Um, Mm -hmm. I need my professors to review my chapters. How can I get that done while still working on something else? So there's just a lot there. If you go into project management or program management, you know, you're basically just managing dissertations for other people. Um, Just it's that the product looks different. So there's a lot of skills like that, that really matter. Communication, networking. And then the last thing that I would not underestimate is a lot of our dissertations and, and, and the theses that we write, um, yes, there's a lot of it that you bring out of your coursework, but so much for many of us, what we wrote on, we had to spend hours upon hours learning about an area that was never really covered in our core curriculum, mm-hmm. but we had the skill set to tackle this topic, to read everything there is to know about it, to evaluate that we know enough about it to speak to it or write about it and defend it. Um, that is fundamentally going to be your first few years when you pivot into a new field. Um, you're going to re you're going to come across a lot of terms, software programs, a lot of policies and procedures that you have no experience with. But if you're really good at figuring stuff out and reading it for yourself and self-assessing, Hey, I feel like I know this now. That's something again, not only that will help you survive when you make this shift, but it's actually something that a lot of people who have never done this high level graduate work before, there's really no other space where you do that because um, for many of us, our undergrads were just very focused on our topic. And so everything we did was on something that the professors gave you. So this graduate school experience really kind of prepares you for that shift in ways that you won't realize until you're in it when you're like, oh, I have to learn how to run this particular, in my case, research model. Uh, Let me go read everything there is to know about it so that I can apply it properly. Now, what about, so was your first role in market research or was it in a different space? Tell me about that first role. 
Yeah. So I, you know, my first role was in an agency. I think for anybody wanting to change fields, agencies are great places to try to get your foot in the door for a variety of reasons. One, you get to do a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, agency life is very variable. Um, so you get moved around on projects a lot. So you kind of get to try your hand and someone else pays you for it. <laughs> so you kind of get a lot of career experience and you get to learn a lot about what you like and what you really don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, that's number one. And then the second one is that agencies often have a lot of turnover and agencies often employ people that are in this stage of life where they're wanting to explore different things. And so, you know, there are senior people in agencies who really keep it all together, but for entry level positions, which is what a lot of, a lot of people are trying to get into, um, those roles, you know, a couple of years in that role is actually quite a long time for, for many agencies. And so, I highly recommend that anybody looking to make the switches look at an agency because they're, they need good talent and they need smart people. Uh, a lot of the skills you can learn while you're there and, and you will learn because things move quickly. So I joined an agency. It was a small consultant firm um, and I did market research there and I got to work across a lot of different verticals and industries. Um, and that's partly why I'm in tech now, because tech was one of our industries and I really mm-hmm. fell in love with it. And then there were other industries that I enjoyed and there were other industries that was like, it's interesting, but it didn't drive my passion. And so um, having that agency experience really helped me identify what I wanted to do and where I want my career to go. And then it also gave me the job experience to pivot into other companies. Now, tell me about the difference in culture between academia and agency life. Yeah, um, I would say, you know, the grass is always greener. Um, you know, there are things about academia that I miss. Um, there, there's this, there's this, um, there's this curiosity in academia that I really found I lost when I left that people that were curious, people that could just really go down the rabbit hole on a very nebulous topic. Um, you won't find as much of that in the real world, because again, it's the focus of academia is building those ideas and building that experimentation. So that's something that I miss from academia. But the flip side is that in corporate life and corporate culture, um, there's, there's a lot of opportunity to try a lot of different things. Uh, budgets are very different. You have one usually, which is different than when you're a graduate student or a professor trying to do a grant. That's very hard competing for small pile of money where it's like you're in a company and that company has their own money. So that's kind of exciting is you get to do research that's meaningful in my case with someone else's money instead of my own. Um, And then the other thing that I think is very different is the mentality of impact and the mentality of the research that we do. So for in in a lot of academic positions, you demonstrate a lot of your impact by proving like a peer-reviewed publication is in field. Um, Someone should pick up that article or that book. Um, In corporate America, the the shift is less about your output and and publishing things and a lot more about driving strategic business decisions that are not always clear. Um, Even your research can come back and say like, well, there's really no difference between A and B, pick one. So I would say it's a lot fuzzier outside of academia. Um, But if you're comfortable with ambiguity and you're comfortable with that space, I think it can be very exhilarating to to constantly be answering new questions and be able to spend someone else's money with it. But the flip side is, is that in academia, if you have tenure, 
things like layoffs aren't really a threat in the same way. When you're in corporate America and a downturn, uh, layoffs are a real concern for people right now. And so, you know, every choice has its pro and con, um, but I would say the cultures are very different. The other thing I would say is there are a lot of people out there with PhDs that are working in corporate America and yeah. you, find, you find your people. Yeah. Um, I'm blessed to work with wonderful people at Meta. Um, many of them have PhDs in a variety of fields that are not directly related to research, mm -hmm. um, but you kind of get still get to feed your kind of inner grad student yeah. Um, finding those people. So you're not giving up everything. Um, it's just a different culture and it's a different perspective. Thinking back, what were some of the challenges that you faced once you were in that role, fresh out of academia, and you're adjusting to just the difference in culture and project demands and all of that? Um, I think the two, one is really, really simple. One is just the amount of terms and acronyms that people throw around that they just like everybody knows the lingo and you're like are you guys like it's like speaking a foreign language different companies are different I, i've worked at some companies that are very acronym heavy and i've worked at some that are not uh but one you'll feel very lost in the lingo at first people will use terms like the drama triangle or they'll use like frameworks that they know that they just think you know um what I have learned is that sometimes people just throw those out there because they assume everyone knows, but there will still be people at your job that don't know. Uh, so Google is everybody's best friend. Um, and if it's a framework or a, a term, Google and Urban Dictionary can usually <laughs> demystify it for you. Seriously, like I lived the first two years of my corporate job on Google. Uh, and then the other one is a lot more practical. It's really just this like, oh my gosh, I really hope they don't find out how little I know what I'm doing. Um, and this fear that they are going to find out that I'm really not that smart. And the PhD is just a thing on paper, but I really don't know what I'm doing. And I'm figuring this out as I go. The other encouragement I would give people is that same feeling will actually happen every time you change companies, uh, whether you have a business degree or not because you will always have to learn the industry. You will always have to learn the vertical. You will always have to learn the product, the process of the company, the culture of the company. So that feeling that you feel, everybody actually feels that. I think it's just more pronounced because coming from graduate school, which makes you very hyper like self-aware, um, you'll become even more self-aware coming into the corporate environment. But if you give yourself time and you give yourself the, the kindness to learn and make mistakes, um, in many states, it's hard to get fired. So, so you have some wiggle room to learn, but, but at the end of the day, you know, asking questions of your peers and being transparent about what you don't know, they know you're coming from academia. They know you don't know everything. So leverage that to your advantage. Yeah. And that's one piece of advice that I received that the PhD and coming from academia, that could be my superpower. That doesn't have to be, you know, like an anchor that's weighing me down. And so I even remember I was on a project recently where I was able to pull in an article that I read in grad school to help kind of frame our understanding of a topic. And I was like, okay, there, there are ways that we can do this. It doesn't, I didn't completely abandon that, that side of myself. So once you were, you were at your current or your corporate role first, Tell me about your transition out of that role and into a new role or that next role. Yeah, I, um, you know, working in an agency, there's also a culture of agency versus corporate side or client side um, and people's personalities. You'll know quickly, like where you feel most comfortable. And 
Um, for me, I, I enjoyed the fast pacedness of, of agency life. But as I quickly, because of a lot of turnover, I became like the manager of the team. And I was like, wait a minute, like I've only been here for like a year. This doesn't feel right. Because uh, like, you know, as you mentioned, Jasmine, like your, your PhD becomes your superpower. And you actually realize that because I have a PhD, I actually know how to go very deep on things. Mm -hmm. And not everyone else does. And I can actually provide a lot of value to companies by going deeper, by connecting things to academics, by doing things in a rigorous way, because I've been held to such a high standard, you can really raise the bar for your company that you come into. And, uh, but what really started to, to shift for me was there was just a lot of turnover and I was just constantly like onboarding and retraining people. And mm -hmm. so that was, you know, I wasn't able to really ever get my team established for like a long time because, you know, they would get onboarded and then they'd find a new opportunity and they would take it. And I think that everyone should do that. Um, so one, I wanted a little more stability and there is a little more stability on the corporate side or the client side. The other one is like, I was just at the top of the stack and I had only been in this industry for like a year, year and a half. And I was like, there's, there's really, I, I don't have mentors. Like I don't have anybody above me who can help me. And I think that was like the grad student still thinking, cause you always have your chair, you have your department head, you have your professors. And I didn't have that like body of people to talk to. Um, I didn't have those people to like brainstorm or come up with new ideas or challenge what I was doing. And so part of me seeking out a new role was like, I just really was hungry to keep growing. Cause I knew that like a year and a half in an industry is not long enough to really be proficient. Um, especially coming out of academics for however many years, you know, it takes years to really learn something. So that that's how I, I started to look around was I was starting to go like, I need something more, um, and I, I, I don't know if I can get it where I'm at. I think I might have to leave. What were some ways you were able to build community at this time? So was it just networking with the PhDs or how did you kind of find those like-minded people within your industry? Um, a one really kind of interesting one is that uh, the University of San Diego in my first job, they have kind of like this longstanding agreement with uh, the person who was in my role before me in this consulting firm. And uh uh, they needed to do a project where they needed to like merge a bunch of data. Um, and I was like, oh, I can figure that out. Um, merging a bunch of like Excel docs. And so um, I was like, I know SPSS from grad school. I can do this. And so I offered um, to help with that and, and to help kind of coordinate their data sets for their, for their paper. And then that created like an opportunity for me to like, I'm still very good friends with both of those professors. And then they started inviting me to like, oh, can you come speak to our class about working in market research? And so that was, that was one opportunity. The other one was just like living in the city as working in corporate America, you get invited to like happy hours and then you meet people who know people and um, you know, you're at a bar or you're at a restaurant and there's other companies having their happy hour too. And so you're like, oh, I met somebody from another company here. Um, I went to like socials, like, um, like, uh, there's a few in San Diego, or, like, you know, young, young professionals kind of things and just tried, tried out different things to see what worked for me. Um, I played like, you know, um, kind of like varsity, like, uh, we have like varsity gay league here in San Diego. So I played like adult kickball and met people who also have jobs. So like every, every interaction becomes a network opportunity. Um, you don't have to think about it that way, but theoretically that it does. Um, and then I, you know, finding PhDs in the wild is harder because there's just so few of them. Um, but you do find them. And then it's always like, 
you know, you compare battle scars and you kind of compare stories from grad school when you meet each other. And, and then that kind of gives you an instant kind of camaraderie because you've both like run the gauntlet of, of grad school. experiences. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. now tell me about your transition to meta. So yeah. what was that experience like? And I'd love to even drill down into even just the, the interview and just tips that you can share with that. Yeah. So, um, when I, when I left the consultancy, I went to HP, um, HP incorporated and I worked on their PC and printer business for about four and a half years. And I made those inroads because I actually had HP as a client. And so I knew the space pretty well. So in my interviews, I was like, you know, I, I've been working on your business for two years as a consultant. Like I kind of had a little bit of an in, <clears throat> I didn't do as much work with the marketing insights organization that I was working with, but I still understood the business. Um, and I still understood the product. <clears throat> And then I was there for four and a half years. Uh, and then going to Meta, um, it was very similar to leaving the consultancy. I just, I got to a point where I had really been in the same or very similar role for four and a half years. I had grown a lot, um, but I was kind of just looking for a change, you know, you know, four and a half cycles and you, you kind of were like, okay, I need something a little new. I, I just need like a change of scenery. And so I started to look around and what opened the door for me at Meta actually was a former manager of mine at HP. Um, who I had met in, we worked together for a short period of time, became very good friends, became very good colleagues. And I had made some passing statement when she left HP. I said, oh, wherever you end up, just let me know. I would love to work for you again someday. And then like a year and a half later, she called me and was like, hey, I want to take you up on that offer. Uh, and I never really had thought anything of it. Um, it was just kind of like, hey, we're really good friends. Let's keep in touch. I'll love to work with you again kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that opened the door for me at Meta. And then um, I was interviewing actually in, in, in multiple companies at the time. And so the one thing I would say about preparing for the interview um, and, and interviewing in general is that every organization at every company is is going to focus on slightly different things. Mm-hmm. But what I what I have seen as a manager that really stands out in interviews is one being a really strong communicator um, and a really good listener in an interview. I know that you're like on the spot. Um, you know, people are asking you a bunch of questions, and you feel compelled to answer them as fast and as detailed as possible. Mm-hmm. But really listening to make sure you understand the core of the question, um, really understand what that um, what that company is actually asking for really understanding what the role is that you're interviewing for, because you can have a great answer, but if it has nothing to do with the role or it doesn't have any sort of application, it's um, it's kind of pointless and it's a waste. Um, so communication is really key and, and listening in the interview is really key. Um, I think the other one is being in a place where you really, you know, you're confident in the skills that you have and you know where your gaps are. Um, you know, nobody interviewing at every company has done everything. So that's okay. Um, I think sometimes, and even in my interview experience, I was like, okay, I got to make them think I know what I'm doing, you know, (laughs) I think I know all this stuff. Um, But I think that what I, what, what became very clear to me was like, that's true. But I also want them to understand that I, I don't know everything, but whatever I don't know, I can learn. And that goes back to like that PhD skill, which is like, whatever I don't know, I can go figure it out. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is just becoming a really good people person. Um, 
ironically, and I just reconfirmed this again last week in a workshop, I am an introvert. Um, I like to be alone. I, I, I really recharge by being by myself. Mm -hmm. I, I think many PhDs will resonate with that. Um, yes. That's why we like to hole up in our offices and write papers. <laughs> but I, I would say the last one is, um, even if you are an introvert, understanding that the there is a little bit of a game in the world, which is making yourself visible and making yourself seen, mm -hmm. taking up space, not waiting for people to give you space because everyone is competing for space, but taking the space. And, 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 you know, as an introvert, I only have so much energy to give before I actually get very like um, anxious and very physically bothered by being around people. Yeah. So I also know how to, to play that game, you know, Hey, I know I have to go to this happy hour, or I know I have to go be in the office next week since I work from home. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to kind of plan accordingly to know that I can't give all to everyone. Yeah. Um, but being a good networker really matters in the corporate world. I wouldn't call it a schmoozer. I think about it more like strategic friendship building. You can't be friends with everybody in terms of time and bandwidth, but strategically thinking about the people that you need um, to have as an advocate and the people that you want to mentor you the people who you see their trajectory in a company, like that's somebody I want to hitch my wagon to because I think they're brilliant and I think whatever they do turns to gold, you know, so I need to be friends with that person. So there's, you know, those three areas, communication skills and networking, I find are really powerful, not just in my experience where I work now, but also looking back, it's kind of what helped me succeed in all of my past roles. It's also what helps you succeed in academics, to be honest. Being a good communicator, having the skills to back up your work and being in the right place at the right time is important. So they, I think to kind of demystify it, I think those are three things that, you know, I, I think very heavily about developing in myself even now is, you know, what am I weakest on in each of those three areas? What can I improve on as a networker, as a communicator, as a skills person? Um, and then I think if you have those three things, you really can open up a lot of doors because you'll, you'll know the right people who will open those doors for you. You'll have the skills to back it up and you'll be able to like stand in front of a room and talk about it. Um, right. I think is pretty important. So that's kind of like my, been my experience. Awesome. Now we have a segment called a day in the life. So as a marketing research manager at Meta, tell me, you know, what's your day to day like when you are, when there's a need for a project or a study where do you step in and how does, how does all of it work? Yeah. So day in the life is um, uh, very meeting heavy. Uh, we're a very meeting culture. Um, I would say uh, different from past lives is that like, I, I do feel like our meetings are usually very, very productive, like really working sessions. They're not just like meetings. They're actually like brainstorms, working sessions, things like that. Um, but in terms of like doing research for me, it's, it all starts with like a business question. We do like, you know, we do plan with our stakeholders, you know, like what are your big tasks? What are your big goals for the half or the year? And then we try to translate that into, to research support. And then we design the research study based on objectives or based on, you know, metrics or goals that we're trying to hit. And then we run that primary research in, in a variety of different ways, you know, whether that's to, you know, do qualitative research, ethnography, things like that, or whether we're doing quantitative research, survey-based, or even more like complex things like um, conjoins, dis discrete choice models, things like that. So it kind of depends, but all of it comes down to what is the need of the business and what is the prioritization of the business mm -hmm. and how can we support that? I, 
I don't really consider research to be a supporting role. I consider it more to be a strategic role. Um, you know, we are not sitting, waiting back to take requests. We are definitely a strategic partner with our, with our stakeholders, um, where we offer advice and direction on, on where things are going. Um, but we do fill a very important function, which as a researcher, um, we have a skill set that to be very honest, not a lot of people want to learn because it can be very technical. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I really love it because it feeds my inner kind of nerd and, I get to do that like academic level of research, but you know, I get to do something else with it. So I still get to feed that side of my brain, which is very mathematical and very like quant heavy. Um, but I also get to do it with like a real world problem. It's not like a, a lab problem or, or necessarily like a constructed problem. It's something that's like, this is actually like a problem <laughs> for my stakeholder. Let me fix it. So I get to fix things for people. I get to help make things better for consumers. And that's day in the life can either be like, being in meetings and workshops, running research, reporting, um, helping mentor my team, um, people that I've hired, and then uh, going from there. And then, you know, all the good stuff like emails and budgets and invoices and things like that. So, But I think it's important that you talk about how research is viewed within your current organization, because I've heard of some people yep. where research is really just like, you know, they just kind of send an email saying, hey, we need this. And it's really not a collaboration. And that's... Yep. Is, is, that's an important question to, or at least something to consider when you're going into an organization is, you know, how do they value the role of the researcher? And are you having to track people down all day to figure out what they need? Or are they willing to have those collaborative conversations? Because it can be tough if, if they don't have that perspective internally. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I, I would say, you know, in every company, it varies um, in past company, in past experiences that I've had, I've had stakeholders that have been just great collaborators. And I've had other stakeholders that really had to work to build um, that from like a service kind of like deli counter, like, please give me one pound yeah. of quant and one pound of qual uh, to a more like advisory role. And, um, you know, I, I would say one of the, one of the things I appreciate about my current role is that my stakeholders, we, have a great relationship in terms of where research sits and research is really highly valued. But I would say the, the, the tenor of the relationship is not like, Oh, okay, well the re the relationship is great. And therefore whatever Micah says, we're going to do, there is still a dialogue. There is still debate. There is pushback. There is question. There is like, you know, Hey, Mike, I don't think you're really capturing the question here or like, Hey, you designed the research this way, but is it really going to give us this, this answer that we're after? So I would say it's a very collaborative organization. We're a very broad organization. It's not a very deep organization. So collaboration is very, very broad here, which in, is, in and of itself is a challenge because you have to manage like timeline with also trying to bring in a host of people to your work. Mm -hmm. um, and then the two things that I think are very valuable that I'm learning here is one, um, how to be a really broad collaborator across a number of cross-functional partners, um, people who may have more context than me, people who may have actually been in my role previously, but are in a different role. Mm -hmm. um, so they have a lot of context that I don't have because they've been here longer. Um, and then there's the, there's like the two skills. One of them I talked about earlier, one is like that, communication and, and networking. I think those are really, really important to build those relationships and establish your value because you can have great research, but if you don't know how to talk about it, no one cares. Yeah. Um, and then 
the other one is just being open, you know, at the end of the day, we're all gunning for this North star, which is like success, whether that's for the product or the business, or the brand or whatever you're doing, but taking feedback that is critical and separating it, it, writing a dissertation is very personal and any critique of your dissertation feels very personal. And yeah. that's a very hard thing to learn that in corporate America, someone critiquing your research is not personal. Right. Um, they're trying to help improve or they're trying to show that, hey, before we go into field, before we do this work, is this really going to get us what we need? Um, and being open to that feedback and learning how to separate that from yourself, that is a hard lesson to learn because yeah. you're coming out of a period of your life where it's like, you know, I've seen people take like pregnancy photos with their dissertation or like newborn photos of their dissertation. Yeah, just- it feels like that. It feels like having a child. And so, um, you know, that 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 is something that in our my current structure, even now, you know, I have to remind myself, like, if somebody questions my research or pushes back on my research, it's, it's not personal. It's just research. So now thinking about when, let's say a resume lands on your desk. Yeah. What are some things that PhDs, graduate students need to keep in mind when they're translating their academic experience into projects? So for example, how would they, how should they talk about that research on paper so that people who are not academic can understand it? Yeah. So I think um, one is doing some research on the field that you're applying to and understanding what the keywords are and the buzzwords are. Uh, Also, if you have, you know, anybody in those fields or anybody that you know is in a related field, asking them, like, what are the keywords and the buzzwords that people look out for putting keywords and buzzwords in your resume does not guarantee it'll get looked at, but it'll start to help you understand like how to translate the language um, to make sure that you're not getting lost. Um, I I would say for me, I have a lot of empathy because I come from academics. So I read academic uh, resumes with like the, the glasses that I can like kind of see through what is there. I think regardless of what language you use, I think what matters most, um, really in, in, in to really differentiate a resume in any company is what, not what did you do, but what was the outcome from what you did? Great. You published a paper. Then what? So what? The, so what really matters in your resume? Because a lot of people there, millions of people are doing things every day in their jobs. And, and I think, you know, looking back on my past resumes, they were very focused on the output and not the outcome. Um, so really thinking about the outcome, Hey, I, I wrote my dissertation and it led to this, or I wrote this article and it led to this, or I was able to teach this class and it drove, you know, I was able to improve test scores or improve passing or improve retention or whatever. There needs to be an outcome. That's very hard to do coming out of academics. So I think early on when you're making this pivot, you know, be honest with yourself about the level of job you're applying for you may have to like really come into something entry level, totally fine. You'll still be able to work your way up very quickly. That's a big difference from academia is you can work up quickly in corporate <laughs> America. Academia, it's like, you really gotta, you really gotta spend some time. Yeah. Um, so that's number one. But number two is really hone in on the skills. If you're like, I don't have a ton of impact, then really demonstrate the skills that you have. Making sure that you're talking about your research design in your resume. Like I, I drew, you know, I did this type of research project. Don't just say I did a quant regression. Like I, I did a regression. Like great. What type of regression was it? What was how was it structured? How because that at least tells me as a manager, like okay, this person knows advanced research design. Great. Um, 
you know, I don't expect you to know every single methodology out there, but I, I know that's like, Hey, if you can do like a sequential equation model, I know that like other things will be very simple for you. You know, it's like, it helps me understand, engage where the person is at. And then the other side of it too, is really at the end of the day, understanding that you have to just be honest in your resume about what you have. And then it is a numbers game. Keep applying, yeah. keep applying until you get your foot in the door and then keep trying Interviewing is not always a success. It can be hard. Sometimes they cut the head count halfway through the interview. So it can be a whole host of reasons why you do or don't get a job, but just keep applying, keep asking for feedback, share your resume with other people, share your resume with people that you trust, share your resume with people who are in the field or in companies that you work at, get their feedback. That's the most important thing that you can do. Because, you know, resume writing is an art, but it's also a numbers game. You know, there are a lot of people applying for jobs and there are a lot of wonderful people who do get them. And there's a lot of wonderful people who don't get those jobs, right. but you're still a wonderful person. Like, you know, it's not, there's only one seat. Um, that's just the way it is. And so what I've heard you say, um, building strategic relationships, also um, LinkedIn, great, great resource. Yeah, it really um, is. And then I know we connected through the Insights Associations. Are there other associations that you are connected with or the groups that you've heard of that can be a source of either information or support for people who are looking to enter the or leave the academic job market? Yeah. Um, so just like you're probably a member of your, your academic discipline, um, I would... I would continue participating just because you leave academics doesn't mean you can't keep writing, can't keep publishing, can't keep presenting. Uh, you're totally welcome. And in fact, you get to do some really cool stuff because you have a different perspective than a lot. You have a fresh, a different perspective than a lot of people in your field that are like doing it every day. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say outside of that, you know, you have AMA, the American Marketing Association. Um, I, it depends what field you're trying to go into. But for me, it's like, okay, I'm a market researcher. So I want to talk to marketers. I want to be around marketing. I want to understand marketers. Um, look up conferences. Some There are some conferences. Um, Google them because you'll need to find the conferences that like appeal to what you're trying to do. But sometimes, you know, paying a few hundred dollars to go to a conference, like that's an investment in meeting a bunch of people who are working in that field. Yeah. And so that's a network that you're kind of like in a presentation. And some of those work, some of those um, conferences are actually learning conferences. So it's not just presentations and you're just sitting and listening to somebody lecture. Mm -hmm. Some of them are very hands-on. Um, some good examples that I've, I've attended in the past, Tableau conferences, mm -hmm. Alteryx conferences. These are like research, like data visualization or data design. Um, not only do you get to learn for a few days, but you get to meet other people that are using it in their field. Um, one of the ways you can kind of sleuth this out is look at, look at job descriptions of like the software or the mm -hmm. types of skills that people want, and then plug those in and see if there's a conference about that thing. Great um, idea. I love that. That's so good. I've never even thought about that. Like if you don't know SPSS and, or you don't know like Alteryx or you don't know SAS or you don't know like whatever that, cause the other thing is you might use, like, I know where I was, I had a lot of friends who used one particular, uh, uh, uh quant software. And that's just not the one that corporate America tends to use. The logic is actually all identical. Like the, the programming language is almost identical. It's just like two different companies publishing similar software, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of, 
it, it's kind of like different search engines, right? It's like they all function the same way. You just get slightly different results and you, you kind of search differently. But, you know, there are conferences to teach you SQL and SPSS. There are like free online classes sometimes to learn these things too. So look at those job descriptions, identify the things that you're like, I don't know what that is. Google it and see if there's like online learning. There's YouTube videos. I cannot tell you how many YouTube videos I watched on the job to figure things out. Yes. Um, and I still do. I mean, it's such a great resource, but there's all sorts of things like Khan Academy, Coursera. There's lots of great things that are free or very low cost um, that can get your foot in the door. Conferences, you know, look for whatever conferences are in your city so you don't have to spend money on travel and right. see if you can kind of combine networking and learning so that you're not trying to spend money in both places or you're kind of scattered. Try to like really focus that learning um, so that you're getting the skills that you need, but you're also building the network. Uh, it'll also give you exposure to the people that are in the field, what level they are at. You may go to a conference on a particular software and realize you're like, wait a minute, I actually know this quite a bit better than a lot of people. So in my next interview, I'm totally on flex. Yeah. Because I'm in a room with a bunch of people who are like, have no idea what they're doing. Uh, Or uh, I I feel like I'm mastering it faster. And these people have jobs in the field. I'll be fine. You know, so it also builds your confidence a little bit because I think coming into not academia, I felt like I knew nothing. And you actually know quite a bit more than you think you do. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for just your time, your wisdom. Everyone that's watching, make sure that you like, comment, and subscribe. Also, feel free to drop any questions or comments in the the comment section, and we'll make sure we get those answered for you with our next guest. All right, y'all have a great rest of your day.